Are you ready for operational excellence? Welcome to the Visual Workplace, work that makes sense, where your host and visual workplace expert, Dr. Gwendolyn Galsworth, shares powerful visual principles and practices to optimize your operations and make them safer, faster, better, and far less costly. The Visual Workplace. You can't get to excellence without it. Now, here's Dr. Gwendolyn Galsworth. Welcome. Welcome to The Visual Workplace. Hello, I'm Gwendolyn Galsworth, your host on this, our weekly radio show about letting the workplace speak. In each of our shows, we look at some aspect of that, of how to embed the intelligence of our operational system into the living landscape of work through visual devices and visual systems, how to install the language of our current level of operational excellence, even if we're not quite as excellent as we wish we would be or as we know we will be. We make that level concrete and specific through visual devices. And then we can literally see how we think and see how that thinking functions, how it performs. Why? How? Because we captured it in devices. And why do we bother? Well, we bother because of the extraordinary bottom line benefits, 15 to 30% increase in productivity, amazing, dramatic improvements in quality, certainly in safety, on-time delivery, shrinking costs, splendid. And we do it for the cultural alignment because we want a spirited and engaged workforce on all levels, not just operators, but everyone, including the plant manager, including the CEO, and marketing, and purchasing, and maintenance, and the doc, and if you're in a hospital, the corollaries in healthcare. Splendid cultural alignment. And we do it so that we enjoy ourselves at work, so that we flow, so that the workplace is increasingly conscious because we made it so, because we implemented those visual devices. So that's why we do it, and that's why I'm really glad that you joined us today. Thank you for taking time in your busy week to join us on Visual Workplace Radio, and welcome. Today, we are going to start a new series. We're going to talk about, (laughs) ta-da, cultural transformation and how visuality does it, and this will be the first in a series that will lead us through visual leadership. We'll look at the entire supervisory level, the executive level, and every level in between. It's the stuff and substance of my new book, the one I'm currently working on, called The Principles and Practices of Visual Leadership, The Eye of the Leader. Now, this is not the physical eye, if you were to see it in print. It is the pronoun eye, because it, like the rest of the methodologies in my work, it is also eye-driven, to which we say hooray. And apropos of books, before we jump in, let me invite you to visit our website, visualworkplace.com, and to look at at least two of my existing books. I have seven of them. But I would recommend to your attention Visual Workplace Visual Thinking, which gives you a really excellent overview of my model of the 10 doorways. I think something like 200, 250 examples in that book. And the second book is Work That Makes Sense, Operator-Led Visuality, which has 500 pictures in living color. We also, of course, have an online training system 
in work that makes sense. And we will soon have visual workplace, visual thinking as an online training system in and of itself. We're working on that too. We're doing that with the Shingo Prize. They are supporting my work in a way that I'm very, very grateful for. Come to our website, visualworkplace.com. There's lots of good material and a lot of it is free. And then you can go to the store if you want to buy books or online training systems, wall charts, resource folios. We add more and more almost every month. All right. So let us begin the first of a series on visual leadership. There are many, many parts to this conversation. The conversation will cover executives as leaders, middle managers as leaders, supervisors as leaders, and yes, operators, value-add associates as leaders, in that case, as self-leaders. When I talk about cultural change, I am not referring to a slight shift in attitude or willingness of employees to participate in improvement. That is important, and that does have impact. I am not referring to either to value-add associates who are more cooperative and less grumpy, a little happier at work. They get less in the way, and some of them actually seem to like to work here. When that happens, everybody notices and breathes a sigh, a huge sigh of relief. I'm not talking about those kind of slight variations on the themes, on the theme. I'm talking about a deep conversion, a sea change, a shift and an embrace of a paradigm that is revolutionary, even though the change may appear to be evolutionary. When you get to the middle part of that change, you realize there has been a revolution, a transformation. What this change is in truth, rather than evolutionary, revolutionary, is stepwise. And I'd like to explain my take on stepwise. The levels jump like a step. Like, have you ever seen that cartoon of the dog that is looking at the step? Not the place that you put your foot on, but the place that supports the next actual surface. And he's staring at that space completely stock still and it looks as though progress has completely stopped he doesn't get that he needs to look up a little bit and see the next platform the next step he's paused stalled stopped (laughs) and he's staring at and it's called staring at the next step (laughs) Oh, yeah. I love that cartoon because the dog is completely stuck. It just doesn't conceptualize that it actually is moving in the right direction. It just has to look a little higher. Paused. It is still, the change is still in process, but it is paused as part of that process. Paused as the change, the change is paused as the change gathers itself and conceptualizes what? The next step. This, for me, is the nature of stepwise change. The wall in front of us, like our little dog, seems like a barrier. 
it seems to be unsurmountable, but only as we keep going with our methodology and our steady application do we notice it as a step, not a wall. I am here to assure you that each of these that you encounter is a step, not a wall, and certainly not a barrier. One of the beauties of transformation is that the thing we are transforming is a barrier, is a wall. It is the stuff and substance of that that we are transforming. And in the transformation of anything, the material there is a material aspect that we use. We use the material as our next step. And I love this about change. It isn't as though we're bringing in something artificial, a ladder to get us up the stairs. It's we use the stair, the construct of the stair itself. We feed upon our perceived barriers. We consume them and they teach us how to move forward. That is why progress and challenge are such strange and wonderful partners. Progress and challenge. The attempt to move forward and that which stops us. They go hand in hand. They interplay. They are the stuff and the substance of our progress. Fueled by challenge. But not challenge as something unforeseen, unaddressable, something that we are unprepared for. We are prepared for it because we have a set of principles and practices that are aligned and practical. I call this methodology. Man, methodology is totally important. You don't just make stuff up. And the Nike... um, exhortation, just do it, is for a different kind of purposeful scenario, but it is not for creating complex level of levels of change uh, amidst many, many, many chronic abnormalities. So methodologies, I'm a great proponent of methodology. In fact, my company used to be called Quality Methods. Remember the night that I came up with this idea, I had left productivity. This was in the very early 1990s, and I had moved from this kind of big corporate world into a tiny little room, an attic room, that a friend of mine rented out to me while I made the transition. I needed to sort things out, and I needed as little complexity as possible. So she paid the bills. She and her family paid the bills, and they gave me a little attic room. It was so tiny that when I had my bed open, which was a convertible sofa that I had been dragging around with me uh, with me for many, many years. I love that sofa. Man, was it built. It was really beautiful. When I opened it up, I had to walk across the bed to get to my desk. And I remember that night. I was sitting. It was a cold February night. I remember it so well. I left in January, and there I was on this cold February night in Boston in my little attic room. And I said, I want to do something great. I want to learn. I want to use what I've learned so far to learn so much more. I'm going to have a company. I had been working for Productivity, Inc. under the leadership of a gentleman named Norman Bodrek, who was um, a a great proponent of knowledge and know-how that came out of Japan. He was an entrepreneur. But he didn't want to explore visuality. I probably told you this story. 
when we first met at the beginning of the show this time around. I didn't want to just do his bidding. I wanted to discover what visuality was. So I gave my notice. I gave like a three-month notice, and I left. It was on New Year's Eve. It was on New Year's Eve, and I remember when I shut the door, uh, there was no one around, of course, because it was New Year's Eve. I had gone there to clean my desk. I wanted no, I didn't want a fingerprint left. I had an attitude at the time. I was really fed up with the work there. It was not my cup of tea at all. I scrubbed down everything. Not a trace. Not a trace of Gwendolyn. And I, I, I carried out my final books and my bags and whatever is coming out. And oh, I unlocked the door to get out. And then I, I, uh, and then it closed behind me. And for some reason, something fell in the bag, my, my kind of big bag. And there was a kind of a, a buzzer that we used when we're at meetings to say to somebody, oh, come on, come on. It would go, Bing, or it would, you know, it makes funny sound effects. But something fell in my purse and, and fell on this. And it started to make all the sounds at once. It was instant to when the door was clicking closed. And it just stopped me. And I thought, oh, I think this is called when the angels sing. I felt as though all of heaven was celebrating that I was going out on my own. And there I sat on a cold February night and said, I want to go on. I want to discover. I want to learn. I want to share. And I sat there walking across my open bed to the desk and I wrote down quality methods because I was very, I was a great proponent of methodologies. And then I added international, quality methods, international, like Tom Watson, IBM, international business machines. In my little attic room, so I would think a bit bigger. I wanted to think big. (laughs) All right. So let's begin to walk through this wonderful understanding of what happens in cultural transformation. And let this be a introduction or a platform on which we then launch into visual leadership, which has its own layers of complexity. It's one that I have found to be intoxicating to be discovering with my clients who allow me to ask them to do things so that I can validate the world of visual information sharing. And it's just been extraordinary, an extraordinary privilege for me. And the, my clients are doing very well. They're quite quite pleased with the result. When you help people change and grow, grow as leaders, to become leaders that they never thought they would ever be, saw themselves as engineers and managers, it's been great. So we're going to march through this wonderful understanding, so practical and yet visionary. I will share what I know with you. It takes almost as long to talk through the whole process as it does to employ it. I'm sorry, to deploy it, (laughs) to deploy it. So I hope you enjoy this series. I want to share with you some of the fundamental principles of how we implement visuality that will prove thematic for this series. And as importantly, the fundamental progression, the premises of how and why visuality works and how and why it transforms. 
And, you know, if you and I talk 2,000 years from now, this will remain a part of our conversation. These principles and premises are functional and they are also core. The process is the anchor and represents an indispensable understanding of what makes this work. This understanding doesn't really occur naturally. you got to learn it. For some people, it will be counterintuitive. For others of you, you'll say, oh, I finally have words for what I already know. I already knew that, Galsworth. Thanks for the words. Thanks, that helps. So here's the progression of premises. I'm going to name six of them, and they will be revealed. But let me just give you the six. Visuality is a language. That's number one. That's a premise. Number two, or theme if you want to call it. As a language, and because it's a language, it is eye-driven. Number three, it functions most completely when it is embedded, when we embed the language. Where do we embed it? In the physical landscape of work. Number four, the result of embedding that language is both understanding and controlling your corner of the world, whoever you are, operator, CEO, marketing, accounting, doesn't matter. That control then turns into margin or space in your personality and your psychology to grow. What we want to do anyway is grow. But getting that control through visuality, through these visual devices, will create within us space. And within that space, we will grow. can't grow without it. And number six, that growth is a shift in identity. So it's kind of, it's, it's a built-in system of making concrete language, making visual language that leads to this shift in identity that we call a leader. So that's the kind of, those are the kind of um, signposts, I would say. I'm so happy to be sharing this with you, really. I, I really love the refinement of this approach to transformation. It is really fundamental to who we are as humans. It doesn't skip over the parts. It says, come, 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 let's do this together. So how visuality does it? I'm going to talk a little bit about lean and kind of move in pretty well-known circles. We've all read about lean turnarounds. Lean is capable of changing the operational profile of nearly every work setting and for the better. And, you know, my definition of lean, which I, uh, I think two shows ago, talked to you about, is about uh, the engineering change with time as the metric. Lean with its emphasis on standard work, time, flow, pull, Lean turns around very, very rapidly. And these turnarounds are life-saving. You can get tremendous mileage out of lean within a year. You won't get a cultural change. Anyway, I'm getting ahead of myself. When these turnarounds are so rapid, can the culture be transformed as well? 
Well, it has been known to happen, but for most companies, it's highly unlikely. There are many available techniques for generating some cultural shifts. The formation of area teams, the Kaizen Blitz or rapid improvement events, suggestion systems, quality circles, or its updated counterpart. Quality circles are really ancient. They're from the 1970s. But none, in my view, is more powerful or more valuable, more long-lasting than the visual workplace in bringing about a complete transformation in the work culture and an aligned, spirited, and engaged enterprise. Yes, that makes lots of money, of course, profit margin. But you and I may not be referring to the same visual workplace. You may be thinking about it as installing a bunch of visual devices, either copied from another facility or designed locally, to address some confusion or spot abnormalities. Well, that's visual, but it's not the visual workplace that I have in mind or the one around which this show is constructed. The last time I did a radio show, we went on for 250 episodes. We went on for five years. And then I felt, you know what, I think I've, I've, I've put a good foundation in place. Now we're starting again. And, you know, if I wanted to talk to you about a bunch of visual devices, it would be done in about two shows if I stretched it. The visual workplace version that I describe as a bunch of visual devices is limited in scope and in impact. It will have impact. It will have some. Make no mistake, installing even a handful of visual solutions will have a positive impact on on operations anytime you share information by embedding it or installing it into a device you're putting the device the device is the information is the is the holder of the information anytime you do that the chances increase that the right work will get done at the right time in the right way the reason is simple you don't have to search for the quality specs or guess at the quality level You don't have to double or triple check your work. You don't even have to locate a binder or a supervisor to get the information you need. Visual information sharing is always a positive, even if it has a limited scope. You know, just a series of of, uh, point solutions. It will also have a limited impact. It will have some impact. It will have a surprising impact if you're not familiar with how powerful visuality can be. But the visuality that I'm referring to is an equal and strategic partner, an equal and equally powerful strategic partner to your lean conversion. It is not the same thing. It is visuality, as I'm referring to it, is a modality that brings with it a unique contribution that is powerful, that is as powerful as lean's and yet different. Like the wings of a bird, you've heard me say this several times, both lean and visual are needed for a company to reach its destination of operational excellence, yet they are separate. They are separate. To transform the work culture, the culture of work, into one that supports operational excellence, 
you have to start from a different base, a different understanding. Lean will not get you there. It will get you partly there, of course. You're lifting so much of the stress, and you're giving people some way to contribute. This part is so often missed, but when you implement visuality as I am prescribing it and as I've discovered it, you're implementing a language. The vocabulary of the visual workplace consists of hundreds, often thousands, of visual devices invented by the workforce that uses them, what I call visual thinking. As a language, visuality is both a means of individual expression and a vehicle for enterprise performance and connectivity. You see, effectively implemented, the visual workplace has the potential to do this and more. It impacts the bottom line. Many times with increases of 15 to 30 percent, the highest that we've tracked has been 42 percent, but 35 percent, 15 percent, if I may say so without sounding completely prissy, 15 percent is a given even in a lean organization. It'll be 15 percent of what you haven't, um, that you haven't improved after you've done lean. It will be the 100% of what's left. It is a mighty, mighty agent of cultural change. The process begins when we recognize and respond to our need to know. This need exists on every organizational level in a visual workplace. We make that explicit and we use it as a tool, as a, as a lever for operators, from operators, I beg your pardon, from operators to plant managers. Every employee has a need to know. No one is exempt. The operative question is identical for each person. What do I need to know that I don't know right now in order to do my work? If my work is leading and deciding, Driving and deciding, deciding and driving, CEO, plant manager, what do I need to know right now that I don't know in order to do that? The same thing if I'm a machine operator. What do I need to know right now that I don't know in order to do my work? Well, I need to know where the material is and what the spec is. When was this tool last calibrated, et cetera, et cetera. It is the I that is the governing pronoun, powerful, indispensable. It is not we. The language of visuality is rooted in the individual's need, the individual's need for information vital for his work, but also missing from his work. This is what I call the need to know. You can listen to the building block, um, the building block episode, I might have done two of them on the building blocks of visual thinking for more detail about it. But as we are moving towards talking about visual leadership, I want to make sure you understand it is still the need to know question. This is what makes the visual workplace an eye-driven paradigm. A fully functioning visual workplace transforms the work culture because it is built on this multiplicity of eyes, the pronoun I. The eyes are, (laughs) on the the radio, it may sound like I'm saying E-Y-E-S, but I'm saying I, plural. The, 
of the letter I, plural. These I's are the individuals of the workforce. Whether operator, plant manager, CEO, engineer, supervisor, everyone gets the information they need when and where they need it because of the visual devices that they invent. You go through, I just want to take care of this question right away because I can hear it erupting in the minds of listeners right now. It doesn't mean that every new person reinvents their workplace to be visual. It means that as we go through those the first cycle of transformation and we get that first layer of visuals, they are used by other people and willingly. And newcomers or just just the next generation of employees use those devices as a base, but they continue to look for the symptom or the footprint of information deficit. They continue to work, look for finer and finer forms of motion. A lot of gross motion is taken care of in the first, second, third wave, and then you go deeper. And sometimes it's a whole different set of human beings who go deeper, but they're using your platform of devices as a base and then they go deeper because these devices are pulled into place by the need to know and by the very people who need to know it and therefore need the devices visuality automatically creates interested users interested users there's no need to sell visuality Just let people answer their need to know, and they're going to love it. They own it. They need the information. Ownership and adherence are built in. They are simultaneous. These devices are effective because, by design, they embed vital information into the living dynamic landscape of work, into the physical work environment itself. Information becomes coterminous with the process. We build it in. So using this understanding and using the paradigm of visuality, because it's big enough to be called a paradigm, it's got enough knowable moving parts and they're on a high enough conceptual level that we can to be called a paradigm. And understanding this helps us appreciate why visuality cannot be enforced as a means of for getting people to change their behavior or by gum their attitudes. A change in the work culture cannot be imposed. I mean, it can, but you're going to get a really, really tough and static, or I should say rigid, work culture if you impose it. Work culture can only be eye-driven. Work culture can only be eye-driven. The best I'm talking about if you want to really do it There's all kinds of ways to almost start it, almost get to the second stage, but you can't have a transformation. It has to be eye-driven because of the definition of culture, which I've shared with you. I'm going to say it again. This is Gwendolyn's definition. Culture is. Culture is, can be known simply like this. Culture is who I think I am. And who I think the other is. That's you. Who I think I am and who I think you are. That's what culture is. Whoever is the I, whoever is the you. 
and you, you look at me and you say, well, culture is who I think I am and who I think you are, Gwendolyn. And I say, yeah, I know that. Yeah, it doesn't feel very good today, does it? No, but that's the, that is an unshaped, ungroomed, unimproved, if you will, work culture, who I think I am and who I think you are. It plays itself out in all kinds of behaviors. The culture becomes aligned. You have, if you want to use terms in the field, a world-class Shingo Prize-winning culture. When I know that I am you, and I act that way, and you know it too, that's an aligned work culture. That's robust. That's contributing. That's vital. That's not just enjoyable and fluid, but that's when I go to work, and I go there to think, not to work. I go there to think. This is Toyota. This is Ono, Taichi Ono's way of describing the outcome of the work culture. People don't come to Toyota to work. They come to think, said Ono. Okay? It can only be eye-driven. Lean doesn't bring us that. And there are lots of companies that don't want to invest in going that far. But there are enough of them that do. And they are becoming showcases. I've told you about the company that I'm working with in Mexico who have permitted me to bring the model to them. And they have said yes. And companies are coming from other places in Mexico saying, are you kidding me? You're doing that with our people? You're getting that kind of leadership that kind of connection, joy, alignment, performance. Yes, they have to work on their process. The culture is ready. They're ready. Capable, eager, smart, refined. They have their tools. They've been transformed. They're ready for the race. Ready. The plant manager, for example, and I'm now kind of going back to talking about leadership, The plant manager, in terms of need to know, has a need to know, well, a wide variety of contextual data, often many times a day. She needs to know a lot of stuff at a glance, and only then can she have a timely and accurate understanding of the current situation needed to assess her options and decide or decide not to decide. She needs that at a glance to make decisions or let things simply roll so that the organization can move forward. That need to know, one of the major pieces of that need to know is what we discussed last week on visual management. It is data that you can see at a glance. You have line of sight. Supervisors have an equally, equally, Vital need to know within their locus of control, which is what I call their department. When the answers they seek are embedded as visual devices so they can access them at will and accurately, completely, at will, on time, supervisors can do their job both as logistical expediters, in case your organization has not yet moved to lean, they can become, a, they can execute logistics expeditions 
smoothly and efficiently. Vital answers are available at a glance, when and as needed, no more chasing down information, and as a result, and this is what's important, let us pause for a moment and put a bracket, this is what you get from an embedded language that is responding to your need to know. They get control over their corner of the world, and you know what happens then? Something inside of them relaxes. Because they can do their job. They have the information that they need to do their job. And we, we sigh. We relax. At last, the pressure is off. The insane pressure is off. I still have pressure, but it's not insane today anyway. I can breathe for a moment anyway. And you know what the gift of that is? The gift of the breathing room is that a small margin of space opens up inside their workday and inside themselves. A little bit of a shift, a little bit more air, a little bit more space, a little bit. And I can shift my focus away from the worry and the hardship and the hardness of doing it to a slightly different, slightly higher, can I say that? Slightly higher focus. Supervisors can become, and I'll be using this term a lot in in this series, can become leaders of improvement. They can shift their identity, their identity, I should say this this way, their identity shifts because it can in that little bit of space. It'll shift a little bit, but man, you start shifting your identity a little bit and it becomes a big change. It looks evolutionary, but living it on the inside, it's revolutionary. In a fully implemented visual workplace, the cultural transformation deepens because the language of excellence has become the intentional foundation on which all work is done and made. When logistical tasks, supervisors can be done routinely through embedded information sharing, supervisors can reconceptualize their roles, especially if you're ready to say, hey, Let's take that little bit of margin and let's focus it this way. They can shift their roles. They can shift their identity because they have the margin to imagine both differently. Their identity shifts. For operators, the need to know sounds like I need to know where my pliers are. I need to know where my material is for this order. What is the heat treat level? I need these answers and I need them embedded into the dynamic landscape of work because I don't want to have to memorize this stuff. I don't want to have to go find the binder and I don't want to have to go find you, supervisor. But when you listen closer, you'll also hear, I want to be in charge of my corner of the world and I can't unless I have the information vital to the task at hand at my fingertips, the work that you've given me. I need it accurate, complete, and I need it when I need it, and I will make it so. I will redesign my work area, and I will make it a partner in my work. And because I can rely on the things of the workplace, 
the physical things of the workplace to assist me, I can relax. I can rely on my bench. I can rely on my gauges. I can rely on my machine. I can rely on all my tools. They're at hand, visually available to me, and I am free to let my mind rest. Worrying is not the same as thinking. Worrying is not the same as creating. Hmm? I'm just going to let my mind rest. And you know what the natural state of the mind is? I'm pretty sure I went through this when I was telling you about borders. The natural state of the mind is creative. The mind is creative. That is its natural state. What we mistake for thinking is really worry. And all of those worries are in the past. We just regurgitate the past. And we seek to solve our current situation by going over and over and over again the past. I know this. I've seen my mind work. That what I call my mind, but it isn't my mind. It's just an overlay, some illusion of the past, trying to recreate or change the past with my brain. Hmm. Even though I don't have a degree, says the operator, as an engineer, I can be a scientist of my own work. I can contribute. I can be a hero at work. This is the outcome we want from operator-led visuality. It is also the outcome that we want for sure from supervisory levels and executive levels to be a hero at work in my work. Hmm? What would it be like if that was an outcome, HR outcome or management outcome? Let's make a hero out of the people we work with. And hey, would you include me in that as well? I'd like to be a hero at work. I can't be a hero if I don't feel like I know what I need to know. Okay? In too many companies, the culture is out of control. With everyone struggling just to get their work done, their own work done, isolated from others, whatever the connectivity might be physically, I might be standing right next to about five people. But I'm isolated because I'm struggling to get my work done. It's called motion. Struggle is, wor- is motion. Struggling struggling because the system is not working. The material is missing. Specifications are missing. Information is missing. Everyone runs around looking for these or they simply stop and wait. They don't trust the system. They don't trust the company. And you know what? They don't trust you. They don't even trust themselves. They are on their own entirely, disconnected from from themselves, and they know it. That's unsafe. It's unsafe, and it's unfit for human activity. (laughs) How are you going to solve that? If you're a manager, you are a steward of that environment. This is a sacred task. You may not think of it that way all the time. It could be just a pain in the neck. But really, those people are looking to you, you as their steward. It does take a joint effort 
to decide to move through this transformation. You can do it on a small scale for yourself, but you will soon hit a barrier. Oh, how wonderful it is when senior management says, yes, this is what we want. Yes, it will take us two years. It will probably take three years, I say, quietly to you. But man, when you change that, everything changes and it changes moving forward. You don't have to live in the past anymore. Everyone is renewed. The identity shifts. No matter what your organizational level, we feel the pressure of not knowing because with it comes this looming fear, fear of failure. The information is out there somewhere. It's out there. I know it's out there. I have to find it. It needs to be here. (laughs) Culture is behavior. And in this culture, the one I just finished describing, where people don't trust the system, the company, you, themselves, people are worried, hypervigilant, or they're indifferent, or third choice, they're combative. So that's how visuality does it. Visuality, because of how we implement it. It isn't bringing in the the devices. It's that the devices are invented by the people who work there because those devices hold their need to know. We're going to follow exactly that line of logic, that pathway, that protocol, that understanding when we talk about the shift of supervisors becoming leaders of improvement and the shift of executives becoming leaders of improvement. This is visual leadership. A visual workplace is radically and profoundly different when you construct it in that way. When the information is embedded in devices because we have made it so. When the information is where we need it and when we need it. Without hesitation, without struggle, people can do their work and they will work in harmony with others. They will have a sense of space, of margin within their own beings. They will have room to breathe and to think and to grow. You'll take advantage of that relaxation, those moments of rest, and people will grow in a way that is profound and very profitable for your company. You know about these companies because visuality is a language. And because visuality is a language, the need to know pulls visual devices into place organically. This isn't cut and paste, cookie cutter visuality. That will defeat the transformation. You teach people to think. You teach them how to think visually. Your supervisors as well. They're going to observe it first with operators because typically, and there's only maybe two exceptions in the last 35 years, We begin the transformation on the operator level. We create stability there. We create this scintillating, vital connection of operators with their work and give them that sense of control where they have redesigned, re-engineered, relayed out their work area. They own it and they are committed to that improvement because it's so interesting. They become scientists of motion. They get rid of the struggle because they don't want to struggle anymore and they realize They don't have to. This sense of margin erupts in them. Visuality is a language. The need to know pulls the devices in place. 
we experience something unusual at work, we experience control and visuality gives us control over our corner of the world and our attitude and our cells change. We become molecularly a different person and the workforce is spirited and engaged. So I named those six things. Visuality is the foundation of this sense of control. Something inside us relaxes, space opens, the pressure is off. We feel the margin in our being, margin to breathe, to think, to create, to change. Those six things, visuality is a language. Because it is a language, it has to be eye-driven. It's something I speak. And it is about embedding that language into the living landscape of work. That's number three. Number four, the result is control over our corner of the world, and that turns into rest that triggers a margin, an internal relationship with ourselves and, of course, with our work. And that, number six, triggers a shift in identity. Oh, wonderful. Oh, wonderful. I didn't know this at the beginning in 1991, but I saw something happened. And because I'm a kind of word person, I wanted to put it into words. What is it that went on? And then it went on with operators and supervisors and then CEOs and then everyone. And I thought, oh, my God. So this is the first in our series on visual leadership. I want to peel the onion. We'll be talking about supervisors as leaders. We'll be talking about executives as leaders. I will tell you where the terminology of becoming a leader of improvement came from, an interesting story in itself. Well, we will pick this up in our next episode. I'm so glad you joined us. When you come, it's a gift because then I can talk to you, and I love it. So right now I'm going to sign off. This is Gwendolyn Galsworth wishing you very good visual thinking and a highly productive visual journey. Let the workplace speak. Thank you for joining us this week at Visual Workplace Radio. Tune in for another episode next Tuesday at 1 p.m. Eastern Time, 10 a.m. Pacific, with your host, Dr. Gwendolyn Galsworth, on the Voice America Business Channel. Let the workplace speak.